Welcome to another episode of The Places Where We Belong, written and read by Brett Wallach, a retired geography teacher in Norman, Oklahoma. Like a lot of other countries, Trinidad really has only one airport. It only has one runway, too, and it's oriented east-west. The American carriers serving Piarco are American and United, American with a daily Airbus from San Juan, and United with a daily 757 from Chicago via Miami and Caracas. Landing is usually from the west over the Gulf of Paria, so people with seats on the left side of the plane see Port of Spain. Behind the city, they see the northern coastal range, which extends 40 miles east of the city and fringes the length of the island's north coast. The mountains are heavily forested, rugged, and penetrated by roads only on the west, near the city. From the right-hand side of the plain, passengers don't see so much. There are the swamps of the Caroni River. To their south are the green plains that have grown sugarcane here for nearly two centuries. Finally, in the distance, there are the subdued southern mountains. At night, there are lights from that direction. They belong to the oil refineries near San Fernando, 20 miles to the south. The brightest light is the distant solar flare from an oil platform off the island's southeast coast. It's easy to rent a car, and there's a four-lane road to Port of Spain. It's the east-west Churchill-Roosevelt Highway, and it's one of Trinidad's two main roads. A few miles west of the airport, you intersect the other one at a T-junction heading south to San Fernando. The Churchill-Roosevelt is the older of the two. It's a vestige of Lend-Lease and was built to serve a military airfield the Americans constructed 10 miles east of Piarco. This was Waller Field, built as a way station for bombers on their way to Africa. It was promptly abandoned after the war, and there's nothing left except a fine concrete runway with lots of grass in its expansion joints. The other main road is different, heading south from the T-junction. This was the Princess Margaret Highway when it opened in 1958. Thirty years later, it was renamed the Uriah Butler Highway, after a spiritual Baptist preacher who became labor union leader and the founder of three political parties. Connecting Port of Spain with San Fernando, which is to say connecting the two main population centers on the island, the Butler Highway is much busier than the Roosevelt-Churchill Road, at least east of the T-junction. The old Spanish grid at the center of Port of Spain survives. It's roughly a kilometer square, with the main street formerly called King. Predictably, it's been renamed Independence. The city has only two high-rises. One houses the finance ministry. The other houses the ten-story Holiday Inn whose interior shabbiness hints at the damage done by declining oil revenues. There are Catholic and Anglican cathedrals, and a few other big colonial leftovers, but the general impression is of small buildings, independent merchants, and lots of traffic, some with wheels and some with feet. Port of Spain was much praised by Derek Walcott in his Nobel acceptance speech of 1992, Walcott spoke of the city's mongrelized ferment, and he called it heaven. But roti shops that are supposed to close at eight 
The roti is Trinidad's most popular fast food, and it at least starts out like a chapati. Actually start shutting down at seven. The shopkeepers told me they were afraid. Crime was up. So was homelessness. I saw sheets of precious cardboard, bits of old boxes, spread out to soften downtown doorsteps. Early on a Sunday morning in November, after a brief but intense shower, a man came up and asked for a couple of dollars. He took five minutes to explain that he used to live in Arizona, was a musician, spent everything last night at a concert, and now needed bus fare home. The nearby Anglican Cathedral was very quiet this morning, but kitty-cornered to it, there was a building whose upstairs windows were flung wide open. It was a primitive Baptist service, and these are people who like to sing. Three young German tourists, there are very few tourists in Trinidad, and these few stood out, wondered if they might dare go up and look. To the east of the old Spanish grid, there's a steep mountain spur covered with chaotic slums. To the west of the Spanish grid on flat land, there's a new grid, early this century, welded onto the original one. The lots here are small, and the houses have only one story, but the sidewalks are clean, the fences are solid, and the homes are of plastered blocks, painted in pastels. Nearby, at the water's edge, there's an industrial district, a container port, and a stadium. They're on land reclaimed from the sea by the energetic Americans. The British found this terribly depressing. They had held Trinidad since Napoleon's time. They were used to skin-flint budgets, and they were amazed at how much the Americans could do and how fast they could do it. Between the industrial land and the new grid, there's a four-lane coast road, an extension of the Churchill-Roosevelt Highway, it goes to what once was an American naval base, another relic of Lend-Lease, this one not abandoned until 1967. The huge steel buildings echo in silence. To the north of the old Spanish grid, you'll find the walled compounds and dogs of the rich. The embassies are here, of course, the foreigners, the presidential palace, the American banks, the resort-like Hilton, and a new upscale shopping center. On Sunday night, when everything else in town is closed, the shops here are crowded with people with money to spend. People, is it true or just my memory, whose skin tone is lighter than usual for Trinidad? A few roads penetrate the hills behind Port of Spain. In a steep half hour, you come to a misty and cliffed north coast, too rugged for boats to find anchorage. Along the way there are scattered clearings, but mostly the mountains have slipped from cacao plantation back to forest. It's a fast transition, for cacao here was traditionally grown under shade. Why did they slip back? Cacao was established here in the 1880s, when sugar prices were low. By World War I, a fifth of the island was in cacao, famous for its fine quality. But the Gold Coast came on stream after World War I, and late in the 1920s, a weed called Witch Broom came to Trinidad. It might as well have been called Witch's Broom. By 1940, Trinidad's cacao exports had fallen 75 percent. 
and nowadays they are only a tenth of what they were in 1916. You pass occasional groves, but they are usually in dire need of pruning. Cacao is more likely to come to mind if you notice the Cadbury processing plant on the highway in from Biarco, or perhaps when, in the northern valleys, you see a surviving plantation house. Some are very handsome, with verandas and plenty of latticework. People say these houses are riddled with termite damage, but they still have a charm missing from the new houses that are popping up nearby with barred windows, chain-link fences, and razor wire. Go farther afield. In the space of two hours, you can leave Port of Spain, pass Waller Field, and head out along the ten miles of smooth beach but rough surf at Matura Bay on the east coast. The beach is closed in summer when green turtles nest here. Within three hours, you can make your way to Galera Point at the northeastern tip of the island. The road crosses lots of bridges, and they all have the word London on a manufacturer's plate riveted to the old box girders. There are a few other vestiges of empire. At Galera Point itself, there's a lighthouse with the letters VR and the letter J. And the date, 1897, the VR is plain enough, Victoria Regina. The J can take a while until you remember that 1897 was Victoria's much-celebrated jubilee. The northeast trade winds at Galera Point throw a strong surf against igneous headlands. The vegetation, like chaparral, is permanently bent to the southwest. Seagulls look like they're trying but failing to get to Europe. There's not an Englishman in sight. Officially, they got out in 1958, when Port of Spain became the capital of the newly independent British West Indian Federation. A young Princess Margaret came for the occasion, but Jamaica soon dropped out, and as the local arithmetic calculates, 10 minus 1 made 0. Trinidad, joined with nearby Tobago, was on its own by 1962, and in a nation of over a million people today, there aren't 10,000 of European extraction. The town closest to Galera Point is called Toco, and almost everyone in it is a descendant of the slaves who, after emancipation in 1838, left Trinidad's cane plantations and headed for the remotest spot they could find. Today, there are perhaps 200 homes in Toco. Almost all are small, and some are very poor, but others are meticulously kept up. Many of the better ones have large plastic water tanks. The local hardware store also sells plastic pipe, galvanized roofing, and construction blocks. The strange thing is that nearly all of Toko's dozen or so stores are permanently shuttered. The only places open when I came through were the hardware store, a credit union, a shell gas station owned by a Chinese, and a grocery owned by Toko's other Chinese, a man whose sign read, Gaston Lee Tung, licensed copra merchant. His father had built the store. Gaston had been born in it. He asked if it was true that grocery stores in America were self-service. He wanted to know if America had stores like his, where a floor-to-ceiling woven wire screen kept customers away from the merchandise, and where all transactions were done through a head-sized hole in the screen. Why were all the other stores in Toko closed? Gaston said that people preferred to shop in bigger towns with lower prices. 
I told him it was the same where I lived, except that people didn't go to those bigger towns in minibuses. They drove their own cars. For the plantation owners who had just lost their slaves, salvation came with a recruiting office in Calcutta. This was the Trinidad Immigration Department, through which nearly 150,000 Indians passed between 1845 and 1917. In exchange for passage, they were indentured for five years. I suppose that's better than outright chattel slavery, and it explains why Trinidad today has as many Indians as Africans. You don't see them in Toco, and you're not likely to appreciate their numbers even in Port of Spain, where they are outnumbered two to one. But go back to the T-junction on the Churchill-Roseville Highway and head south to the town of Chaguanas in the cane-growing plains. There the balance is reversed and more, with Indians outnumbering Africans four to one. I went in hopes of finding some old Indian jewelry or textiles. I failed. The immigrants came with very little, I suppose, but there's also almost no new Indian stuff in Trinidad, where taste in jewelry runs overwhelmingly to American products. This is remarkable. It's hard to find an Indian in the United States who doesn't know the village from which his ancestors came. Not so in Trinidad. I wandered around a place called Patna. Everyone was Indian, but not one person in the local grocery store knew where the name Patna came from. Not one even knew that there was a city in India called Patna. I asked a travel agent about tickets to India. A few well-off Indians did buy them, he said, but they went as religious pilgrims, not as people returning home. As those pilgrims suggest, Hinduism survives in Trinidad. There's more proof with the shops that sell puja materials, the stuff required for domestic worship. There are also hundreds of temples, but even here the changes have been profound. I got a flat tire near the town of Kunupia, and while it was being patched, I crossed the street and walked into one of these temples. This one was dedicated simultaneously to Hanuman, Shiva, Lord Krishna, and still others. The priest lived next door. He explained that he personally owned the temple. It was his business. Hinduism is famously elastic, more so in Trinidad than anywhere else I can think of. Consider the town of Chaguanas, which appears under the name Arwakas in V.S. Naipaul's A House from Mr. Biswas. Readers get the sense of a sleepy place, distinctly Asian in flavor. It may have been so early this century, and there are still a few old abandoned shop houses with a store on the ground floor and a residence upstairs. You can hardly miss the old Main Street residence of the district medical officer, Dr. Inderjeet Birja, MBBS. It's still in use, an old wood frame building in Colonial Ochre. Across the street, there are two big Canadian banks, the Bank of Commerce and the Royal Bank. Here's Plaza 2001, all high-tech steel and glass. Here's a pushcart loaded with apples from Washington State, courtesy of refrigerated containers offloaded at Port of Spain. Here's Hingu's travel, with Christmas specials to New York and Toronto, and with not a mention of India. And now we enter Nepal's supermarket, telephone 665-3010. There's a shelf loaded with five-pound bags of curry powder. One would never see such a thing in India, but the women in Shaguanas, the clerk says, are too busy to mix their own. And though Mr. Nepal is a Brahmin, 
His store has a meat department. Not only that, the butcher sells beef, minced beef, beef liver, beef tripe, beef stew meat. Nothing hidden about it. The words are all there bold on a blackboard. Can it be? Down the street, there are fast food shops specializing in bus up shuts, the Trinidad equivalent of Paratha. And there are beef bus up shuts. I went into Ananda's Indian cuisine, where there was a sign advertising burgers, chicken and chips, hot dogs, roti, and beef bus up shuts. Ananda smiled and said that about half of Trinidad's Indians ate beef. He himself handled it, but would not put it in his mouth. Beef eating Hindus? Shall we blame this on the destitution of the arriving immigrants? V.S. Naipaul's grandmother came not only naked but shamed, unable to stay in India. Shall we weigh the decades in which these people lived as coolies, despised and humiliated? Perhaps we should also blame Trinidad Television, which carries Good Morning America, Peter Jennings, and Jeopardy. Come out into the smaller places around Chaguanas. Places like Indian Walk, Barrackpur, Calcutta Settlement. How many locals know where the namesake Barrackpur is? My flat tire had been at such a place, and it had happened when I stopped to inspect what in Trinidad is called an earth house. These are like Tudor shacks with heavy framing and a mud brick infill faced with more mud and straw. While I was jacking the car up, I got into a conversation about these houses with a man doing some roadside weed whacking for the local public works department. He said he could build me an earth house for $15. That was a 1960s price, he said, and would have to be adjusted for inflation, but he'd do the job right, with tapia grass for the mud brick and glue wood for the frame. All I had to do when I was ready was come to Canupia and ask for the sewing machine man. Everybody knew him that way, he said. There aren't a great many earth houses in Trinidad. Mostly in these small towns you see run-down shacks of never-painted wood, places with rusty corrugated metal roofs. There are shutters for windows that once had glass. Above there are wood-barred clear stories. There are new homes, places of solid masonry well kept up. It's puzzling because the sugarcane industry is in very poor shape. True, there are 30,000 acres of cane in Trinidad today, exactly the same as in 1930 or in 1900. That doesn't sound so bad, but Trinidad is now on the third chemical it has tried in its war against frog hoppers, and there have been problems with land ownership and government incentives. Back in 1968, nine-tenths of the island's cane was controlled by the British giant Tate and Lyle. Two years later, the government bought a controlling interest in the company's Trinidad properties. Production crashed. The 30,000 acres that yielded 160,000 tons of sugar in 1930 now produce only 100,000 tons. And trade magazines talk about Trinidad having the world's highest sugar production costs. So how is it that one sees good new houses out here in the cane villages? The answer is that in the last years of British rule, a third of Trinidad's labor force worked in agriculture. Now the figure is down to less than 10%. So when I asked one man about a good house in such a village, he said that it belonged to a couple of teachers. 
The starting net monthly salary for a teacher, he said, was the equivalent of 600 U.S. dollars. Not bad. Other places, he said, belonged to men who worked in oil. Like Cain, however, oil is in trouble. Production has fallen by a third from its peak in 1978. Income is down even more sharply. But there's still a great deal of wealth in the community. Go to San Fernando and visit the hilltop neighborhood. I suppose that an American college professor, stretching, could afford to buy a garage down here. The city's not all rich, of course. But a big new mall opened last year. It has a supermarket, ATMs, film kiosks, bookstores, and American fast food. Downtown, near the old Colonial Fish Market, you can see the Trinidad Government Railway Depot. The tracks were taken up in the 1960s and replaced by buses that run back and forth hourly to Port of Spain. I liked San Fernando. I liked it so much that during my week in Trinidad, I actually found myself commuting the 20 miles between the town and my base at the University of the West Indies, which is between Piarco and Port of Spain. Morning and night, I was earnestly studying what is now called the West Indiana Collection. Mostly, I was reading about the old Imperial College of Tropical Agriculture, set up by the British in 1926 on the site now occupied by the university. The old college building now houses the university's administration. The building has an unobtrusive cornerstone with a fine Latin motto that translates as, The way of the cultivator is by no means easy. I don't think that's a quotation from classical sources. I think a college administrator who knew some Latin took a perfectly good English phrase and put it into Latin as a sign of his erudition. I would read morning and night, read about witch weed and frog hoppers, alternative crops and marketing problems, but spend the afternoon looking around San Fernando. One afternoon, I went from San Fernando south along a paved road for about 15 miles through a teak plantation to the coast at Morn Diablo. There were no swimmers, no picnickers, no tourist facilities. Instead, there were four or five beached fishing boats, dories, more or less. Every morning at two o'clock, fishermen arrived and set out to sea, four to a boat. They went seven miles to the Venezuela border, which they recognized when the water turned silty from the flow of the Orinoco. Here the men fished for sharks. They worked in the dark, without lights, because Guyanese pirates were hunting for outboard motors. The Trinidadians came back at dawn and unloaded their catch into trucks, waiting to take today's sharks to the San Fernando fish market. That's why the road to Morn Diablo had been paved. The man who told me all this was the only person at the beach this afternoon. He lived out here, the only person to do so, and he worked for one of the boat owners. Twice, he said, he had been on boats that had had their motors stolen. It had been a long way back, rowing. His father had been a fisherman, too. He had fallen overboard and drowned. The body had been pulled up in another man's nets. The son had been ten at the time. Two years later, his queen died. He meant his mother. So now he was here, perhaps age 20, patching nets. Looking back, I know that there were some things I missed in the library, some people I should have talked to in government offices, but I regret most not getting back to Morn Diablo, not chatting a bit more with Gaston Lee Tung, not hearing the sewing machine man talk more about building earth houses. <laughs>